0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Center for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Do you know that every time you fill up your car, you're paying for the UK's biofuels mandate, the Renewable Transport Fuel Obligation, or RTFO for short? Not many of us do know it, but 6% of the price at the pump pays for biofuel to be blended into petrol and diesel. More concerning still, at a time of soaring food prices, crops such as wheat and corn are still a central part of the industry. That's why a new report from the Centre for Policy Studies calls on the government to phase out food crops, both to bolster food security and help the environment. For this week's episode of the CapEx podcast, I invited the author of that report, our energy and environment researcher, Dylan Smith, to explain just what's going on here and what kind of reform we need to see. Dylan, welcome to the CapEx podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. You've got your report on biofuels called Drop the Crops from the Centre for Policy Studies out this week. Just for our listeners' benefit, as this is your CapEx podcast debut, who are you and what do you do?
2: Great. Thanks so much, John. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. So I'm Dylan Smith. I am the researcher for energy and environment policy here at the CPS. I've been he- with the CPS for almost a year. Prior to this, I was actually an investment banker. And after a couple of years working in the city, decided uh, to trade the banking lifestyle for uh, come work for the CPS.
1: So your report is on biofuels, which I think it's fair to say is not a particularly well-known topic. We talk a lot about solar energy, wind power, and obviously we talk a lot about fossil fuels, not least thanks to campaigners like Just Stop Oil. Just for our listeners' benefit who may not be familiar with this, what are biofuels and what is the kind of history of this sector?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And it's funny, this is one of those things where my friends, I mention, you ever go up to the the forecourt and uh, see E10 on the fuel gauge? You ever wonder what that is? And they're like, Oh yeah! That is, E10, or the equivalent for biodiesel, is called B7. And essentially what we're doing here is taking substances that are known as biofuels, either can be made from food or from waste, and blending that into petrol or diesel. And here in the UK, we've been doing that on a large scale for the last 15 years or so. Interestingly, this is a sort of a decarbonization policy that dates all the way back to 2007-2008. The last Labour government brought this in as part of sort of an EU-wide policy agenda. And basically, the thinking was EVs are very far away. It's going to be difficult to sort of, you know, replace all of the car infrastructures around the country. So if we're going to decarbonize cars, why don't we just decarbonize the fuel? E.g., we blend biofuels in that displaces petrol or diesel, and thereby we're, over the life cycle, decarbonizing the fuel mix that has gone in. There are a whole host of issues that came up as soon as we put this into practice, which happy to get into. But that's sort of the basics of what we're doing here.
1: Even more basically, what are we talking about? What plants are we talking about here? Ethanol is one that I think most of us will have heard of. What crops can we use to make biofuels?
2: So for ethanol, it tends to be crops like wheat or corn or sugar beet or sugar cane. Those are the big four, but there are a fair variety of crops that you can use. There are also waste products you can use. So for example, food waste you can make into ethanol or agricultural waste, the sort of cobs or the stocks that get left on the fields. On the diesel side, you have to use different plants. So traditionally, what was used was palm oil or soybean or rapeseed or plants like that. Again, now, happily, a lot of that's moved over to waste. So most of what goes into our biodiesel supply at this point is actually used oil. And that's, you know, used oil from a fry shop kind of a thing.
1: Right. Okay. So if you've got like a chip shop or something, then after you're done cooking, you can use that to power your car.
2: Don't pour that directly into your engine. you need to do an industrial process to make it into biodiesel? But essentially, yes.
1: Yeah, I'm reminded of there was a kind of fuel shortage a few years ago in the UK and people started pouring vegetable oil straight into their engines. Service and food. the smell, by all accounts, was quite something.
2: Indeed, and it can really muck up your engine. So for all those listeners at home, don't do that.
1: <laughs> okay, good. We're a public service as well as a podcast. So yeah, I'm interested because all of the crops you mentioned are also food crops, basically. So sugar beet, sugar cane, wheat. And we'll come on later to the alternative uses for land, because that's one of the big questions here. One thing I'm interested in is, where does this sit in the, if you like, the hierarchy of green fuels? Essentially, what you're doing is growing something to combust it. So it doesn't necessarily sound particularly green to me. And then the same is true of things like wood pellets, which is kind of a biofuel in itself. Are biofuels particularly green?
2: So that's a good question, but uh, a slightly complicated one. It depends what biofuels we're talking about, and also in what context we're using them. So food crops is one of the things we argue against quite forcefully in the report. The issue here, I mean, the original logic seemed quite sound, right? Crops grow, they absorb carbon from the atmosphere, so when you're burning them in the tank, it's not like we're sort of dredging up petrol from the ground and burning that and adding to the problem, we're just sort of, we're neutral in that sense, and hence reducing the CO2 profile. The problem with this is when you put that into practice, at the time, people sort of thought, well, there's plenty of agricultural land around the world. There's plenty of excess of it. It's fine if we dedicate some of this to biofuels. We can just keep planting crops in ever-increasing numbers. And the sort of the thinking at the time was we can keep blending more and more biofuels, and that's how we'll sort of pursue this decarbonization. In reality, land is limited, right? So when you had a bunch of government policy incentives got put into place to grow a bunch of crops for fuel rather than for food, what that meant is agricultural land had to expand and you had to find more land around the world to grow crops for food, thus leading to the problem known as indirect land use change, i.e. the indirect effects that biofuels policies have land use around the world. And the problem is, it's not like there's a bunch of vacant land just sitting around, particularly from an environmental perspective. So, in the early years of these programs, a lot of what happened is, areas of natural vegetation or forests were chopped down, and then food crops were planted there. It's not even necessarily a direct one-for-one, e.g., we chopped down a forest and that land directly is what's feeding our biofuels. Rather, because biofuels adds a lot of demand to, you know, palm oil or wheat or anything like that, overall rising demand around the world leads to more deforestation, and thus Actually, when you plug those two together, the carbon savings, the theoretical carbon savings that we have can disappear substantially, if not entirely, from the sort of the calculations that you're making. So basically, to make a long story short, biofuels from crops, while it may have seemed green when they first were brought in, actually in reality are not particularly green and for a whole host of reasons are not a particularly good idea.
1: Yeah, I think there's a tendency also to think of whether a fuel is green purely as a kind of abacus of emissions. But from what you're saying, there's all sorts of sort of secondary effects as well. If you're cutting down forests to grow something, then that's you know animal habitats, biodiversity, ecology, and all this stuff as well.
2: And you know it's good that in a sort of broader context, in the EU and the UK, we're starting to take things like deforestation seriously for you know a whole host of reasons. But yes, it, you know if you told policymakers at the time this is what the consequences of this policy would be, they would have never sort of started doing this in the first place. It's just people didn't really think of land use change in such an indirect manner at the time.
1: Are there any crops that you think are better than others in those terms? So palm oil strikes me as a particularly bad one for the environment because it's often in subtropical or tropical regions with rainforests, places like Borneo, for example.
2: Indeed. So absolutely true, not all crops are created equal. By far the worst crops from an indirect land use change perspective are the oil crops such as palm, precisely because many of the regions in which these grow particularly well, such as you know, Indonesia and Malaysia, have very carbon-rich tropical forests that are essentially being chopped down to plant palm trees, which is, of course releases a ton of carbon into the atmosphere and, and is horrible from a CO2 perspective. Ethanol crops tend to have less land use change impact or indirect land use change impact than oil crops, but on the flip side, None of those are particularly sort of robust carbon savings when you actually include the indirect land use change factor in. Fascinatingly, to supply into the UK's biofuels program, the RTFO, you have to adhere to a minimum greenhouse gas saving threshold. And yet, that threshold actually doesn't include indirect land use change, even though the government models out precisely what the impact should be, albeit on a relatively generalized basis. And so it is one of those things where if you sort of plug in what they say is the greenhouse gas saving, with the indirect land use change, oftentimes, even for the ethanol crops, it doesn't hit the threshold it's supposed to hit. And yet we keep doing this.
1: There seems to be a theme among net zero environmental policy that green accounting can be a little bit fuzzy around the edges, shall we say? Um, um, you mentioned Indonesia and Malaysia there, but who are the big players in this industry? And also, a secondary question to that is how economical is it to produce as a fuel? Is it heavily subsidized? Is it fairly cheap to make and then to run your car on?
2: So no, here, at least here in Europe, bioethanol is more expensive than petrol, biodiesel is more expensive than diesel. So every time you fill up at the pump, you, the motorist, are paying a premium relative to what you would otherwise pay if it was 100% petrol or 100% diesel. In terms of who the big players are, again, it depends on the crops and who we're talking about. On the diesel side, it tends to be quite a lot of, for example, Malaysia and Indonesia. But to be fair, countries in Europe grow quite a bit of sort of rapeseed, for example. On the ethanol side, the United States is a huge supplier of corn, corn ethanol, but other countries such as Brazil supply uh, sugarcane, for example. Amazingly, uh, Ukraine is actually a significant supplier into the UK market for biofuels, particularly corn. And that's actually even both in 2021 and in 2022, they were in the top five suppliers to the UK's biofuels program in 2022, despite being invaded by Russia.
1: I mean, that sort of doesn't surprise me in the sense that Ukraine has always been the Bread basket of Europe, but yeah, the fact that they managed to carry on despite all that is quite remarkable.
2: Indeed, and and you know, you sort of understand it from a farmer perspective because the whole, a lot of the reason that policies are particularly popular with farmers is, of course, the impact on prices, and you know, it's profitable for farmers to therefore grow these crops that have a relatively sort of stable source of demand that they know has to take up. Because these blending programs, it's you know, the fuel suppliers they have to blend these crops into biofuels to hit into petrol petrol diesel to hit these targets. This policy is very popular with farmers. And yet, from an aggregate perspective, you know, you and me, the motorist are sort of paying for this every time we fill up. And of course, there's the impact on food prices. So, you know, bread and olive oil and sort of things that too, this is a wealth transfer from consumers broadly to farmers.
1: We could do a whole podcast about how agricultural policy is basically a a set of transfers towards farmers incomes. But uh, I think we'd be here all day. So let's just zero in. So you've written this report, as I mentioned in the intro, for the Centre for Policy Studies. It's called Drop the Crops, which I think gives you a decent idea of what the aim is. You've mentioned some of the big players, but what does the UK's, A, biofuels, kind of homegrown industry look like? And B, what's the sort of policy framework that we have? How big a deal is biofuels in the UK economy?
2: Sure. So we have couple of bioethanol producers. We also have a couple of biodiesel producers here. The UK government has worked quite hard to sort of nurture a domestic industry and support the UK's renewable fuels sector. In the grand scheme of things, the biofuels industry is relatively small relative to other energy industries, and yet there's still relatively substantive impact. From a land use perspective, the latest government statistics show that roughly 36,000 hectares of UK farmland was going to biofuels that's essentially bioethanol. We always say an area size of Wales. What, can you give us a rough idea how much land that is? Sure. So that's just UK land. If you include all of the land, including the land used abroad for the UK biofields market, you get to 107,000 hectares, as calculated by the Green Alliance, which is roughly comparable in magnitude to the amount of UK land that we use to grow potatoes which is 140,000 hectares. So, obviously, relative to some of the larger farming industries and animal husbandry, this isn't massive, and yet this is still a substantial sort of use of our land that could be going to better uses. So
1: what kind of percentage of the UK landmass are we talking about here?
2: Small percentage of the UK landmass, our friends at Transport and Environment and the IFEU have essentially calculated that if you look across Europe as a whole, and include the land that's used abroad. It's something like the area of land mass the size of the country of Ireland. Yep. Now, granted, the European programs are different than ours in a lot of ways, but that does give you a sense of the scale. If it helps, you know, something like 10% of all grain grown around the world goes to biofuels rather than animal feeder or human consumption.
1: In terms of our, what do you see as the kind of defects of UK policy in this area and how might we remedy them?
2: The government knows that crops are not ideal, There have been a series of reforms to this program, the RTFO, over time. They've introduced several policies to essentially disincentivize crops, but they're in this weird sort of twilight zone where they're disincentivized, but they're not banned outright. And essentially what we're calling for the government to do is drop the crops, phase them down relatively quickly or sort of as as soon as practically possible, while also working with our allies and partners around the world on this issue, who also do a lot of crop-based biofuels to help improve food security more globally.
0: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss.
1: do you think biofuels are a viable or desirable part of our future energy mix? Given the some sort of environmental issues and the fact that they obviously displace land that we could use to grow food, the world's population will hit sort of 11 billion in the mid-century. Are biofuels here to stay, or do you think it's a case of actually phasing them out over the next few decades?
2: A couple of sort of important points to, to remember. The first is what we've been talking about so far is just biofuels from crops. substantial majority of what goes into our biofuels right now, as I mentioned at the start, overall is waste products. And for example, our biodiesel at this point is mostly waste products. There are certainly issues to be aware of that's there as well, essentially stemming from the fact that you're incentivizing a product that's meant to be a waste, and hence you can sort of get into all sorts of tricky situations. As long as you can be assured that they're being sourced sustainably, biofuels from waste can play a role. Obviously for cars, and again, that's mostly what we've been talking about uh, here and in the report, electrification is clearly the way forward. This industry will sort of slowly die over the next decade for the car manufacturing. Where biofuels may be quite useful is in other sectors where electrification or hydrogen is a bit further away. So think of trucks, think of planes, think of ships. In these sectors, the technology is a little bit further behind and hence as a way to transition to a fully zero emissions vehicle, biofuels from waste can be a relatively helpful sort of tool to do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was going to be my next question is, yeah, we talked about transport a lot. Can you generate power using biofuels? Are there, you mentioned planes there, is that something that that already exists?
2: Is there an ethanol powered plane? We know there's a solar powered plane, albeit quite a slow one. Certainly, there's plenty of biomass power generation. Mention sort of wood pellets and, and Drax, of course, yeah. um, there's a whole nother story there. Essentially, anything you can burn in a car, you can burn in a power plant and hence generate electricity. In terms of other sectors, essentially, the direction that the industry seems to be taking is particularly towards aviation. Um, these are known as, quote, sustainable aviation fuels, SAF. And essentially, the story there is quite similar to the story for road transport, where we're going to blend in a certain percentage of biofuels and hopefully increase that over time. And thus, that's how we'll decarbonize, particularly things like long-haul flights, where an electric aircraft is quite far away. Right now, the biggest market for uh, sustainable aviation fuels is actually used cooking oil because it's relatively pervasive. And yet, there are a whole bunch of different, they call them pathways, that you can make SAF. Ethanol is sort of being worked up right now. The most expensive and, and probably the best from a CO2 perspective is called e fuels. You talk to people in the aviation industry and they kind of think we'll need all of these things because it's just, you know, given the amount of fuel that planes consume, you just, you know, from a volume perspective, you, you will need sort of all the staff you can get.
1: And you mentioned the way that policy is going means that biofuels will probably be more or less phased out naturally in cars. In cars. How does our policy towards biofuels interact with the UK government's other policies? I'm thinking, particularly here of the upcoming ban on producing petrol and basically combustion cars, that's 2030. And then 2035, hybrids are added to that. Presumably from that point, there's not biofuels for motoring becomes totally unviable.
2: In a short answer, precisely. The government hasn't exactly spelt out how they will sort of transition this program once 2030 and 2035 phase-out dates are here. And yet, of course, that will sort of happen almost by default. If you look at the government's carbon budgets, think that slightly more than 50% of the car fleet will be electric by 2035. I mean, if you're a, a bioethanol or biodiesel producer supplying the road transport market for cars, you can see which way the wind is blowing and, and know that you know this program this market will essentially die over time and yet there are other sort of sectors where this could be valuable in certain contexts
1: and just a final question something a little bit more out there perhaps one of the well let's be honest one of the few things we've actually done since Brexit is give the go ahead for more GMO and gene editing which the EU is very anti is there any interaction there between the way you could produce crops with certain characteristics and the way that we produce biofuels? Could we have kind of super crops that, you can, that are very energetic and that we can use?
2: Fascinating question. The funny thing is, if you talk to the defenders of biofuels within the sort of farming community, essentially what they will say is that what we really need to be doing, you know, it's not the limiting factor isn't land use. The limiting factor is productivity. So what we really should be doing is, you know, pumping a bunch of money into R&D to make super ethanol crops that, you know, can yield a lot more on a particular hectare of land. You know, yields are quite different. The sugar crops, for example, sugar tank tends to yield far more per hectare than wheat does, for example. And yet, in the here and now, land use is still quite limited. And particularly in this country where we have a lot of competing demands on our land, I'm not sure that's a particularly good argument to continue to, use up what is a substantial portion of our land for this, particularly when you consider that actually, if you want to generate a bunch of energy for transport, by far the most land efficient way to do that is solar panels. Our friends, um, the same IFEU study- in-
1: So this is um, like a German energy institute, the IFEU.
2: Don't make me say it in German, it's like-
1: Anyway, so they have worked out how much land you would need to use for biofuels versus solar.
2: And the answer is to generate the same amount of energy that come from Europe's biofuel crops with solar panels, you would need two and a half percent of the land. Biofuels from crops are a staggeringly inefficient use of land. If you're saying, well, we need that land to generate energy, you would obviously choose solar panels, not biofuels. Now, my other thought there is, as I said, not all crops are created equal. There are other, you know, another sort of response in the farming community and, and sort of the biofuels industry to all these land use points is, Well, why don't we try to get crops that essentially don't take up sort of particularly valuable arable land and you can grow on more marginal land, right? Particularly oilseed crops have been experimented with in this way, which, you know, I'm certainly more sympathetic to. And yet the problem with that is you're trying to maximize commercial yields for these oilseed crops. And yet if you're growing it on pretty crappy land, the yield has never been particularly good and it's never been particularly profitable to grow these in relatively large numbers. Cover crops are another thing that people bring up of like, you know, you could plant something in the winter that would grow very quickly, and then you're not interfering with the primary growing season. And we're still, you know, I have suspicions that any of this will actually work in reality. And yet those are two ways that you could think of to sort of ameliorate a lot of the sort of land use and and food quality concerns. One thing that
1: comes across from pretty much all your answers here is that there there are a great many kind of parameters and, (laughs) and things to play about. Plenty for our policymakers to get their teeth into. Dylan, thank you so much. It's been a really fascinating, informative chat today. Thank you all at home as well for listening as ever. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts or just spread the word by good old-fashioned word of mouth. Do tune in next Friday for another edition of the CapEx podcast.